why should we avoid dividing Europe into Western, Central and Eastern, and instead speak of Europe as a whole? What is Ukraine's struggle bringing to the European idea? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. In this episode, I speak to Timothy Garton Ash, a British historian, the author of 11 books on politics and the history of the present. Timothy Garton Ash is a professor of European studies in the University of Oxford, Isaiah Berlin professorial fellow at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. This is our series Thinking in Dark Times, which seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Timothy Garten Ash, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Great pleasure to be with you. So in History of the Present, your book, I remember you describe your experience of crossing the western border of Ukraine in 1990s. And it was like crossing the border between Europe and something else, something more gloomy, more macabre, something completely different. Uh, looking back, do you think that Ukraine has a huge way, has made a huge way forward since then? So I think the answer is yes, but maybe also my own perception of Ukraine has made a huge leap forward. Um, you know, Flaubert says somewhere, je ne peux pas changer mes yeux, I can't change my eyes. And that's certainly what I saw at the frontier going across towards, uh, actually towards Ushgorod, towards Transcarpathian Ruthenia. Um, but it wasn't in any spirit of uh intra-European Orientalism of, of, of othering of Ukraine. It was simply what I saw. Um, I think in my own personal perception, and actually that of many other Europeans, uh, the first big turning point was not so much 1991, it was the Orange Revolution. And for me, being in Kiev during the Orange Revolution, seeing that event, feeling that event, um, marked a very big change. And then, of course, 2014, and then, of course, 2022. But I think I think it's important to to take it back to 2004. If we look at, at the like intellectuals who were trying to conceptualize Central Europe, like Milan Kundera or um, or some others. And uh, they were trying to, to, to portray, for example, Kundera was trying to portray the Central Europe uh, as a kidnapped West. Did you have the impression back in the 90s that Ukraine is also a kidnapped West? Or you rather have this impression today? So, as you know very well, Central Europe is a movable feast. Um because particularly in that notion that Kundera and uh, Georgi Konrad and Václav Havel and others, and indeed I, I myself in a small way, were involved in promoting in the 1980s and 1990s, Central Europe was, was a ferry. It was a 
a concept that was to carry what had been politically Eastern Europe into the West. And in that sense, one could very well say that Ukraine today is Central Europe, um, detaching it from any specific argument about, you know, the Austro-Hungarian heritage or whatever it might be, uh, as simply in this sense of um, a, a country moving away from the political East and towards the geopolitical West. Um, to be honest with you, my own view is that real success for someone like me, and I'm not sure if, if we'll ever reach that point, would be when we drop most of these adjectives, the central, the eastern, even the northern, the western, and the southern, and we simply talk about Europe, uh, 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 more than 40 different European countries, because after all, the diversity in what we call Central and Eastern Europe is as large, actually larger than that in Western Europe. I mean, you know, the Czech Republic, um, Estonia and Belarus are in many ways as different, if not more so than, say, Denmark, Portugal and Italy. We've met recently in Kiev. You you visited Ukraine during the, the, the big war. And uh, maybe there is you could share with me what struck you most during your visit, what was contrary to your expectations, what was in line with your expectations, maybe some some personal impressions and then reflections that you you have taken out of this trip. So um, I've been twice, actually, in the last six months uh, to Lviv and then to Kiev and, and I'm coming again in, in, in the early summer. And um, it was, for me, an absolutely electrifying experience. Um, it, the, the analogy that came to my mind was with 1940 in England, uh, a moment of national emergency and trauma, uh, the country, you know, threatened with being with destruction and occupation, but at the same time, a moment of great national solidarity, mobilization, self-belief, a moment that defines the country to itself and to the rest of the world for, for decades to come. I mean, you know, Britain is still defined by 1940, and, and I'm sure Ukraine will be defined for decades to come by by 2022-2023. Um, beyond that, the fantastic commitment, particularly of young Ukrainians, that really came home to me. Um, the, 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 the dynamism, the self-confidence, the mixture of idealism and realism. And then two other things. Um, first of all, the fact that every second word was Europe, right? and that the hopes of the country and the hopes of freedom were so much bound up with the hopes of Europe, which reminded me of 1989 in, in countries like Poland and Czechoslovakia. And then the absolute rejection of everything Russian down to the Russian language books, which were waiting, I saw in the cellar of the CIVO bookshop, waiting to be pulped and the renaming of Pushkin Street, and the fact that people who were Russian speakers now um, 
said that it tasted like ashes in their mouth. That that was very striking indeed. You mentioned this this metaphor of Europe, and um, let me just maybe try to dig deeper into it, because if I understand correctly, 1989... It was really the idea of this Kunderian idea of like there is part of the West which was kidnapped and which is now returning home. And uh, it was also a metaphor for Ukraine's European integration for a very long time. But currently in Ukraine, we also see a criticism of Europe because uh, for Ukrainians, for many Ukrainians, Europe not only is a continent which... uh, which has values, which has democracy, which has human rights, but also a continent which is not really ready to fight for them and in which the uh, what I would call the bourgeois ethos, which is the ethos of this positive-sum game, of endless conversation, dialogue, uh, is very important, but it kind of overshadows another type of ethos, which I would call the warrior ethos, the idea that you need to fight for the values, and at a certain moment there, there could be no conversation, but rather a battle. Uh, do you have this impression that Ukrainians not only try to join Europe, but kind of uh, also are in uh, in a in a um, contesting contesting the idea of Europe today? I would say that Ukrainians are giving a really important challenge to Europe which in a way is reminding us what it's really about. And actually, you know, I think a lot of people, I was in Brussels a few weeks ago, and a lot of people there were saying, you know, that Ukraine has reminded us what it's really about and reminded us in particular that freedom is not some kind of automatic process that follows in, in almost Hegelian fashion you know, from having liberal democracy and a market economy and a European Union, that freedom is always a struggle, always. That freedom's battle um, is never finally won. And for me, truly the word of the year is the Ukrainian word volya, with that combination of freedom and willpower. So I think, yes, I think I think Ukraine is reminding us of something really important. Uh, and it's very striking to me, you asked what, what struck me in Kiev, how often in um, my conversations um, it came up the idea that the West's problem is fear. I think Zelensky at one point said it's a choice between freedom and fear. Um, and so I, I think that's there's a really important lesson there. I'm, I'm not sure it's bourgeois society so much. Uh, I think it's the illusions of what I call in my book, Homelands, the post-wall period, the post-1989 period, when people inside the European Union really came to believe that we were on our way to perpetual peace and that peace could be secured just by dialogue and negotiations and economic interdependence, and it was fine to be dependent on Russia for energy, and you didn't actually have to be ready to fight for it. When I, as a Ukrainian, look at the history of Europe and like looking through these uh, textbooks of European integration, uh, I find that they uh, 
miss something very important. And uh, uh, you know probably that Timothy Snyder criticized this idea of Europe as built upon peace, saying that there is an imperial part of Europe and, and therefore we should rather conceptualize the European Union as a, as a post-imperial Europe, a Europe which ceases to be a Europe of empires and trying to be something else. For me personally, there is an, a, another element of that, and uh, for me a very important author is uh, Richard von Kudenhofe-Kallergi and his Pan-Europa, written in 1920s, which I think is a very lucid text because it was calling for European integration on the on the ruins of the of the Austrian Austro-Hungarian Empire primarily uh, as an antidote to the new imperialisms which he saw emerging in Russia and in Germany. So there is this anti-imperial idea behind Europe and the idea of the battle against empires. And and I think this is something that is now being revived in Ukraine. Do you have this feeling too? So you're absolutely right that the literature on European integration, on the European Union in particular, much of which, by the way, is almost unreadably dull, um, is also very mythopoeic. And uh, I completely agree with um, Tim Snyder and others that we simply occluded our own imperial history, including the fact that the country's building the original European economic community from the late 1950s on, were in many cases still empires, and indeed in the case of France, still fighting a war to, 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 to defend its empire in, in, in Algeria. So I think that's exactly right, that, that it needs to be understood as a post-imperial project and an anti-imperial project. And for me, the meaning of the war in Ukraine is that if we succeed in supporting Ukraine to a clear, decisive victory and then to membership in the European Union and NATO, which is what is needed, also for Moldova and eventually Georgia and the Western Balkans, then we will be closer than we've ever been before to what I call a post-imperial Europe. That's to say a Europe that has no empires dominated by a single country, by a single hegemon, either overseas or on land, um, because, of course, the Russian empire is the last big one. But having said that, here's the paradox, and it's a paradox I explore in a recent essay in Foreign Affairs. In order to defend our interests and our values as Europeans against the Russian empire, declining, but trying to recolonize against the Chinese empire, against the Indian empire, against these old and new empires all around us in the world. Europe has to acquire some of the characteristics of an empire, a liberal empire, a non-hegemonic empire, an empire of law, not of force, an empire by consent, but nonetheless, a system of supranational law, authority, and power. So, it is, in a way, the post-imperial and anti-imperial project that itself needs to become an empire. That's a very interesting. Although I would, I would rather disagree with the, the way how you 
you use this concept of empire because empire for me is something that has a center and doesn't have borders and therefore it 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 it, it constantly it is constantly enlarging it uh, it is uh, not localized and i am actually opposing empire to republic the idea of republic which uh, has multiple centers, uh, which has borders, but not not necessarily has uh, one center. And maybe maybe Europe currently is not an empire precisely because it doesn't have a, a clear center, uh, although it also doesn't have clear borders. So it's 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 a really interesting combination between the two. What do you think? Uh, you know, this is clearly. To say to any European that we want Europe to be an empire is an intellectual provocation, obviously, because most Europeans think of empire as something bad and from the past and undesirable. Um, but it, what, what it usefully does is confront us with the notion, uh, number one, that Europe has power, and number two, that even if we don't think of ourselves in that way, um, people elsewhere possibly do. Uh, I, I think it, it, it questions how broad you are in your definition of empire. If you take the Holy Roman Empire, that had no single national hegemon. It was actually a system of multi-level governance with multiple centers of power, uh, as well as a symbolic uh, figure of the emperor, an elected emperor, by the way. Um, so that, you know, there are precedents in European history for multi-level governance. And as for the frontiers, you know, in a way, surely, seen from Ukraine or seen from Moldova or Georgia, um, one should be rather pleased that the frontiers are not so clearly defined. Um, because, you know, the, the slightly ambiguous situation in which... Uh, um, you have visa-free travel to the EU, and in time, other aspects of belonging to the EU will be added to that. Seems to me a rather, a rather desirable project and prospect. I really like your your comparison of the European <clears throat> project with the Holy Roman Empire. We can we can go even farther and say that emperor is probably the the president of the European Council and the Pope is the president of the European Commission or something like that. Uh, but it's indeed maybe there is something that really re-emerges from that medieval medieval approach to politics where uh, it was not clearly focused on nation states. It was much more, uh, much more plural and uh, the heads of the nation states today are probably those Kurfürsts and princes and and barons of of the medieval era, but let me let me come back to Eastern Europe because you were among the first Western scholars in the last decades to take Eastern Europe seriously, and to take, for example, the the thought of the Eastern Europeans seriously, the dissident movement seriously. Do you think Eastern Europe is now one of the centers of the global history, and therefore people who want to understand global history? For example, need to learn Eastern European languages like Ukrainian, Belarusian, Romanian, Georgian, and and study these countries in 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 more detail. Absolutely, without question, um, the, the 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 center has moved eastwards, if you like. And um, um, I, I think I once wrote years ago that the uh, 
Central European story is the Central European story. And I think that may again be true. But if I can come back to something I said a little earlier, uh, you know, my the ultimate goal for me of, 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 of studying Eastern Europe and indeed supporting, as I've done, um, the struggle for emancipation and uh, freedom and integration of Eastern Europe is that in the end we will no longer need to talk about Eastern Europe because uh, uh, what I really want to get to is a position where it's just Europe, this wonderful kaleidoscope of European countries um, where one has this wonderful experience, which which gives the title to my book, Homelands, of being at home abroad. And so there are you know, things that Ukraine has in common with Ireland, but distinguish it very strongly from Slovakia and vice versa, uh, so that it's a complex palimpsest and kaleidoscope of different European experiences. And I actually think it's a pity that because of the heritage of um, uh, of the Cold War, um, we still have this kind of slightly artificial division between East European studies and West European studies, um, where East European studies still tend in many universities, particularly in North America, to be lumped together with Russian studies. Um, so, yes, I think it's absolutely one of the central theatres of global history at the moment, um, but I would like to see it studied in the longer term um, as all European history rather than this kind of separate set uh, labelled East European history. But maybe we should also look farther to the East. For example, there is a lot of talk about the national emancipation of national minorities in Russia. So probably the new scholars should look even farther east and, and study, I don't know, uh, Buryatia, Tatarstan, Russian national minorities, maybe Central Asia, maybe go deeper into the Caucasus. Well, indeed, as, as and indeed, I'm just off to the Lennart Meri conference in Tallinn in Estonia, and Lennart Meri himself actually spent a lot of time studying the minorities in the former Soviet Union. So there's a rich field of study there. Um, so, so, so this brings us, apropos ill-defined frontiers, to the obvious and important fact that Europe doesn't end at any clear line, except possibly at the North Pole, where it ends at a point that Europe just fades away across the vast expanse of Russia, across the vast expanse of Turkey, across the Mediterranean, in a sense, even across the Atlantic. After all, Canada would be a perfect member state of the EU. And so the, 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 the trick here will be to understand, you know, the story I'm trying to tell in my book, which is of, of the project of Europe whole and free, of so many different European countries coming together in a shared political, economic, and security communities, but still keep one's eyes open to the fact that it's not, you know, a single stark bright line. Hey, there's the line where Europe ends, and beyond that is not Europe. And so there has to be this 
complex negotiation, both intellectual and political, precisely at the frontiers of whatever the current European Union or European political community or European Holy Roman Empire is going to be. But then there is, of, of course, a question about Russia, because why why I started this conversation from from your personal experience in the 90s? Because, I mean, I agree with you that it, it, it is there is no kind of a Orientalism in what you describe, because the reality was like that. And uh, the thing is that the reality has changed profoundly. And uh, Ukraine in the past decades just broke this idea of clash of civilizations because it's just uh, moved very much, moved very much in, towards the European way, way of life, European values. But then there is a question about Russia, of course, uh, because contrary to Ukraine, Russia has a long history of conceptualizing its non-Europeanness. If you take Ukrainian intellectual history, you, 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 you don't take no big author who would say, okay, Ukraine is not Europe, Ukraine is something else, some different civilization or whatever. I mean, if if you take even Ukrainian progressists, socialists, leftists, but also people from the right, even from the far right, like in the, in the 30s, they were all conceptualizing Ukraine within the European, certain European ideas, even bad European ideas like fascism or or or, or far-right conservatism. But if you take Russia, uh, you see that kind of there is a kind of consensus among in the Russian intellectual history that even uh, people from the left or people on the right, they were all conceptualizing Russia as something as anti-Europe or non-Europe. And uh, from this, Russian Marxism was born. From this, Russian conservatism was born. From this, Russian Eurasianism was born. And here we have this question, right? Uh, can Russia really conceptualize itself or parts of Russia uh, eventually as European? So I think I see that slightly differently. I mean, first of all, of course, you're absolutely right about Ukraine. Um, there is a... Um, there's, uh, just after the Orange Revolution, I was trying to persuade Jose Manuel Barroso, the European Commission president, to say that Ukraine belonged long term in the European Union. And he said, I can't do that. I'd be immediately slapped down by two major member states, by which he meant France and Germany. And at that point, um, Sehi Plochi quotes this, uh, um, a spokeswoman for the Commissioner for External Re uh, Relations said, there has first to be a debate about whether a country is in fact European. A, a classic statement of, of, of intra-European Orientalism, of the othering of Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe regarded as not fully European. By the way, ironically enough, the spokeswoman was British. <laughs> um, but what I would say is that whereas in the case of Ukraine, you have a country which is clearly unambiguously European, now accepted as such by Western Europe, what you have in the case of Russia is what you also have in the case of Turkey and what you also have in the case of some countries in the Maghreb, which is a domestic argument organized around the ca categories of Europe or non-Europe, non or more traditionally pan-Slav and westernizer. 
So that what I would push back against is, is, is the notion that was expressed to me by a Lithuanian MP in 1994 in the unforgettable words, Europa ist nicht Russland. Europe is not Russia. Um, because I, I don't think one can make the apodictic statement either that Russia is Europe or that Russia is not Europe, because it is precisely an argument inside Russia as it is inside Turkey about to what extent it wants to orient itself up towards Europe. And actually, and, and here I think I may differ with some U Ukrainian friends at the moment, I, I think we always still want to keep open not just the channels of communications with Russians who have that orientation, but the long-term hope that Russia, like Turkey and like the Maghreb, could come into what I call, to kind of phrase, a special relationship with the European Union. The key, uh, the key word here is long-term, uh, because I... Despite my skepticism about uh, about Russia, I know I know Russian intellectual history very well, uh, and therefore I have some skepticism. But I do hope that I, I agree with you that we should we should not define the, the the borders of Europe. And the case of of Ukraine shows that. And uh, we should rather hope that they will move farther east. But the problem for us today is that uh, it can really take generations, and maybe. My hypothesis is that Russia is currently in the state of mind and state of values that some of the European countries, Western European countries, were 100 years ago in this imperialism, colonialism, social Darwinism, etc. And therefore, it can take really long time um, for us. I, Let I, me, I, yeah. I, could I just add one word to that? Because I think it's absolutely right partly because of the specifically Russian history that you're referring to, but also because it's just losing an empire. And, you know, Dean Acheson said of Britain in the early 1960s that Britain had lost an empire and not yet found a role. Uh, some would say that's still true. In other words, countries that have lost empires, it, it takes a hell of a long time. So it's a long-term process. Also because, you know, when the Brits or more precisely the English or the French, lost their empires, they had a nation-state to go back to. This is where I actually disagree with, 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 with Tim Snyder, who says they were never nation-states. No, they were empires, but they were still. There was a, you know, in the 16th century, there was a, an English monarchy, there was an English Supreme Court, there was an English parliament, there was an English civil service, there were English territorial government. There were all the institutions of a nation state. And of course, none of that has been true of Russia. So I think it's going to take a very long time. And therefore, I don't think there's much we can do to, to, to influence the evolution of Russia directly. I think we influence it. I think, to put it simply, our Russia policy today is our Ukrainian policy. By creating a different external environment in which Ukraine, above all, but also other countries in the neighborhood, are securely within uh, European and Western communities, you create a reality to which, in the end, the Russians themselves will adapt. 
That's uh, that's very interesting, and I, I I totally agree with that. Uh, let me ask a question about about the future. Uh, it's of course a very very mauvais ton to to ask a question about a future from a historian or intellectual, but uh, let us reflect on this. When you look at the global history in the coming decades, what major scenarios do you see? Because if you if you say that Europe should regain power and become a kind of a liberal empire, that would mean that uh, the idea that uh, it's like liberal values will just uh, spread without any effort that had people in the 1980s, 1990s, it is it is certainly wrong. And uh, Europe and the Western world, democracies, not only the Western world, but the idea of the democracy all over the world will face and is facing increasing challenges through, from new authoritarianisms. And therefore, at one moment, you should be ready to fight, to struggle. So do you think that we are entering a world which is much richer in conflict, in um, in struggles, in wars? So, and in the 2000s, we had this lovely, charming idea that the future of the world was to become more like late 20th century Europe, cooperative, rules-based, multi-level, post-national, post-modern. Um, the European Union was a model for the rest of the world to follow. If I look at the world today, I would say it's more like late 19th century Europe, writ large on a global scale. That's to say a world of um, competing empires and great powers uh, quite ruthlessly and coolly pursuing their own interests witness the fact that even though Russia is fighting a brutal war of recolonization against Ukraine, uh, countries like China and India and Turkey are still totally happy to go on dealing with Russia as a fellow great power. And so I think that's the world we're going into. One like late 19th century Europe writ large, a world of competing empires and great powers, except in very different circumstances, with massively higher levels of economic interdependence, a, a hyper-connected world through the internet, a world of alarming technological developments like AI, and of course, uh, climate change, and uh, a, a global population of Eight, more than 8 billion people, many of whom can't feed themselves. So I think it's an extremely dangerous and challenging world we're in. And so my idea of, you know, Europe as intellectual provocation, liberal empire, is that we need that collective strength, that power, simply in order to defend our own interests and our own values um, in this in this new jungle, um, and it's not going to be a case, unfortunately, of us being able to smoothly spread those values across the world as we naively hoped and believed in the 1990s. At the same time, uh, we are so much focused on Europe, but at the same time. I think it's it's also wrong to think in geopolitical terms. 
and uh, it is important to understand that there is a lots of number of people in countries that we consider as authoritarian that are actually want democracy and want human rights and they are they are in asia they are in africa they are in latin america they are everywhere so do you do you do you see that this european project can be attractive for them not as a geopolitical project but as a value project and therefore do you think that the ukrainian struggle can be attractive for this non-western world uh showing this idea that look there is an underdog a, a weaker state which is able to defend its freedom against a much stronger power so freedom's power is above all the power to attract and europe free europe still has that in spades witness the number of people who risk their lives to try to get here so i have no doubt that that is one of our greatest assets and it's interesting the way you put it because um you know if if someone like me with a with a british accent starts preaching post colonial values uh, of of you know equality and dignity and human rights and denouncing uh, the the russian empire and its war of recolonization um we're slightly open to the charge of at least historical hypocrisy uh since we were colonial powers ourselves for centuries but if someone from ukraine or from slovakia or from estonia actually from many countries in eastern europe uh, does it i think it can be more plausible more persuasive because after all you were the victims of colonialism rather than the perpetrators of it so yes i think so and i think i think europe as a place of freedom as actually a unique exemplar of a, a multinational community of freedom can continue to be very attractive indeed and by the way what i'm not suggesting is that there's going to be a smooth continuous rising of the authoritarian competitors because you know china now has a system that has nicely been called leninist capitalism we have quite a lot of experience more than 100 years of experience with leninism and we know that leninism as a political system is not good at coping with uh complex modern uh economies and societies so that you know we've had our crisis or are having our crisis but i think china has its crisis still to come when you look back in history uh do you see those historical moments that we probably can learn from because uh, sometimes we just misunderstand certain historical moments because we just take a uh, wrong analogies and of course i mean historians love to repeat that history does not repeat itself philosophers tend to disagree with that but i think it is it is important to you know come back to this old proverb historia magistra vitae and try to to look at at certain moments of history and try to learn from it so it's it's probably a, a not a good analogy by the way the ukrainian integration to the european union was misperceived uh in my mind because it was taken as an analogy to for example Poland's 
way to the European Union or, or Czech Republic or Slovakia because we were kind of in this wrong analogy of the spirit of the 90s. And uh, uh, that I think we need to rethink that. And you beautifully said that we rather are not in the late uh, 20th century Europe, but rather in, in late 19th century Europe. And I, I totally agree with that this analogy is much better. Maybe you know some other epochs, periods of time that we can learn from. So for me, the gamble of civilization is that we can learn from the past without going through it all again ourselves. I mean, that's that's the job of historians, and historians know that history moves neither in straight lines, as in the the Whig or Hegelian interpretation of history, nor in circles, simply coming back to the same place. I, I like to say it's more like a corkscrew motion, but the question is, is the corkscrew um, i.e. both linear and circular, is the corkscrew line ascending or descending? And, uh, you know, I think since 2008, unfortunately, it's been a descending corkscrew line. I would say two lessons, one that we failed to learn and one that we could still learn. The one that we failed to learn was that empires don't give up without a struggle. So when the Soviet Russian Empire softly and suddenly vanished away in just three years, 1989 to 1991, it was a huge mistake to think that was somehow the end of the story. So when the empire started striking back, obviously initially Transnistria, Chechnya in some sense, but particularly Georgia 2008, and then above all, uh, Crimea and Eastern Ukraine 2014, we should have recognized that that was what was happening, that this is the empire striking back and fundamentally changed our policy. Um, for me, 2014 is a, the turning point at which the West failed to turn. Um, so that, that's a lesson that I hope we are belatedly learning and, and, and facing up to. And that has consequences because, as I said, um, declines of empires take a long time, particularly when the central colonial power, in this case Russia, has no uh, geographically and constitutionally well-defined nation-state to go back to in the way that you know the British and the French did have. Um, the other one is to stick with late 19th century, early 20th century Europe. I mean, to recognize that these periods of rising and falling great powers of imperial competition, and we're in one again, um, normally have led to major wars. We already have one such major war in Ukraine. Another is seemingly coming closer by the day around Taiwan. I mean, if you, if you think that we just take it as normal that um, communist China is doing major military exercises around Taiwan, um, explicitly saying this is an exercise in taking over Taiwan. Um, you know, even in 1910, they weren't doing so much of that. So I think to recognize just how dangerous this period is shaping up to be, and the obvious lesson that you need both deterrence with strong military power 
and the willingness to fight if need be, um, but at the same time, diplomacy and communication and dialogue uh, and constructive engagement. Last question. What is what are your inspirations in terms of reading? What what are your books, authors that really, in your opinion, help us better understand history today? Europe, Eastern Europe, although you you don't like this term, and I I agree with you with not liking this term, but but still, what are your uh, what are your advice today? My goodness, well there are quite a lot out there. I have to say. Um, including the very lovely experience of learning from my own former student, Timothy Snyder, um, but also many other um, Ukrainian and other authors I very much admire, like Serhii Plochi, who obviously I've learned a lot from. But um, to be slightly, um, you know, to go slightly broader, uh, George Orwell is for me still an absolute model of political writing, um, in particular with the message of his book Homage to Catalonia, which is um, uh, absolutely not just honesty, but also to be particularly rigorous and demanding of your own side and not always make it about everything that's wrong with the other side. Here's a guy who fought against the fascists but reserved his strongest criticism in a way for the communists he was fighting with. Um, and then actually, I go back to some of the, the, the great classics of, of historical writing, um, like, for example, the English historian Macaulay. I think one can find a, a huge amount in, 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 in their work. Um, I'm also, let me just mention, because I think it's, it's very relevant, um, amongst recent books which put Ukraine in a wider context um, because there's been much criticism of Germany of late. I, I want to emphasize that quite a few German scholars uh, have, have really been outstanding in, in their criticism of German policy and German illusions about Russia. And I've just been reading a wonderful book by the German historian Martin Schulze-Wessel, which is called in German Der Flucht des Imperiums, The Curse of Empire, and which is actually a superb description of how the curse of empire, Russian empire, uh, has explained so much in the history of Poland and Ukraine, but how also ultimately it's the curse that falls on the head of Russia itself. Timothy Garten-Ash, thank you so much for this conversation. Great pleasure. Look forward to seeing you in Kiev. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org and our series Thinking in Dark Times. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.